This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballerman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballerman, and this is London FinTech Podcast, episode 197 brought to you in association with Smart and the EnlistedBoard.com. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Mario Ineco to talk about money in the 21st century. Ballooning money supplies, government and private debt, cryptos, potentially CBDCs, de-dollarization, inflation, let alone UN agendas 21 and 2030, make this a perilous times for us all and all of our relatives, whether they're in FS or FinTech or not. We'll have a very brief recap of the history of money before focusing on the 21st century to date, and then the possible various futures for money in our economies. In particular, so as not to blackpill you all too much, we will wrap up with Mario's valuable and very practical advice about how to live financially in these circumstances and what strategy slash tactics to adopt. Mario is an ideal person to talk about this topic, having a very successful YouTube channel since 2015, where he's better known to his 60,000 subscribers as Maneco64 quotes the home of alternative economics and contrarian views, unquotes. And just in passing, contrarian has a special meaning for us fund managers past or present. It doesn't mean your stroppy teenager who just disagrees for the sake of it, but rather it's a long-term proven investment wisdom that you don't make money by agreeing with the market. Rather, to make money, you need to stand against the current consensus and preferably be ahead of it. Money is naturally at the heart of all FS, but most FSers don't really understand what it is. They leave that, at best, to their treasury departments. A 2014 Bank of England publication stated that the nature of money is even widely misunderstood in one important respect in university textbooks. And money isn't just something of concern for FS folk. It's worth relating John Kay's memorable metaphor when he was on the LFP. Finance, he said, is like a group of guys go to a pub to gamble amongst themselves. With one exception, that normally this has no impact on people outside the pub, perhaps beyond their families. However, in the case of FS, FS is like, in Kay's metaphor, a group of guys going to a pub, gambling, and the outcome of their game, extraordinarily enough, can affect everybody's life on the whole planet. That's super weird when you come to think about it. So, as where money is right now in 2022 is extremely concerning, and as it will affect not just FS or FinTech, but the lives of everyone you know, we are more than overdue a deep dive into this essential topic. I have been looking for a guest to talk about this for over two years. The challenge being there are two ends of a polarised spectrum. At one end, we have central banker types who know a hell of a lot about what they're doing, but are very much of, yes, this is the orthodoxy, this is the way to do things, and of course one or two things are being done wrong, and we need to tweak those, and that's not a problem. And at the other end of the spectrum, there's the group which I might caricature as Jacob Rothschilds owns all the world's central banks and tells them all what to do every day, and very little in the middle. Mario, himself a long-term FSer, deeply understands both FS and markets, as well as money, super well. And as a consequence of deep understanding, deep study, and having spoken about this, perhaps getting on for daily as it would appear for his channel for years and years, has been raising the red flag in a perfectly sensible and very important way well before we got into the ongoing New World Order global putsch, which started in accelerating with 
COVID a couple of years ago. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Mario. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Good afternoon, Mike, and thank you for having me on the podcast. It's very nice of you to invite me. It is my uh, pleasure, and um, I have the phenomenon, well, I was about to say in the real world, but there hasn't been much that the last two years, but in the old normal, when I occasionally went to conferences, I'm not a conference person, I don't particularly like it, but people come up to me and say, oh gosh, it's so good to meet you, and, and act as if they know me, because of course they've heard me for many years. And it's the same with you, really. I, I see your pixels on my screen, and you're someone that I follow on the average week uh, a, a couple, two or three times for quite some time. So it's a very asymmetric experience. Now, talking about YouTubing, I'm very impressed by people like yourself, or Agad Mato is another channel I follow who just t- tends to do the world chess scene, what's going on, which is a great way I find of blanking my mind out from all the sort of emails and day job and, and all that kind of stuff. But YouTubing from the outside is one of these winner takes all things and it seems to be a hell of a lot of work and you've certainly put a hell of a lot of time in it over, over the years. So how has your journey been and, and when you did your first YouTube in, in 2015 did you really know what you're letting yourself in for or is it some sort of kind of drug or, or habit that you've got in the meantime? Well I, I started uh, back in late 2015 around November time and uh, at the time, I, I was watching a, a few uh, YouTube uh, channels and uh, regular uh, people talking about things. And I thought to myself, I, I can do this, but what am I going to talk about? And I decided to talk about the markets because that's something that I was uh, still involved in personally and was involved professionally for over 20 years. But uh, I had to find another avenue because in the markets I spoke to uh, institutional clients. So I thought to myself, well, if I can teach the public what the professionals and the institutional clients know, I think that would be a good thing. And adding to that, I also uh, wanted to inform the public about the uh, fragile nature of the monetary system, which I had started to look at back in the early 2000s mainly because I bought a few Krugerrands in 2002 after the dot-com bubble burst. My wife and I thought, well, our pensions have been really (laughs) hit hard. Maybe we should try something else. And then when you buy a gold coin, it's special. And then you start looking into it with the internet. And then I went into uh, the Austrian School of Economics. So that's how I uh, planned my channel. And uh, it's not so much hard work because I really love reading and following how the world works and also how the markets are going, what's happening politically, uh, geopolitically, economically. So it's not something that is hard work for me. But one thing that I have to advise people who are thinking of having their own YouTube channel is that you have to stick to it. You can't just do one video, it does really well, and then you you stop for a couple of weeks. You have to to find a a pace. Uh, If your viewers get used to you doing three videos a week, then do three videos. My my, uh, viewers have gotten used to me doing a video every day. So that's been my uh, journey on YouTube. You know, I'm not saying I didn't want to grow the channel, but where I am right now, I mean, I never imagined that I'd have 60,000 subscribers and that I could get 15, 20,000 views per video. Well, as I say, it's deeply impressive. And I say that not just as kind of flattery from someone who watches too much YouTube and too many YouTube channels, but as somebody who back in the day was paid to run a global fixed interest fund management operation. So I'm more than used 
to brokers' reports and perspectives and views and opinions and people putting them over and all that. And um, I'd encourage the listeners, if any of these particular topics we're going to talk about, we've only got time to skate over a number of topics. And I think, you know, one of the meta points that in terms of money at the moment, there are a hell of a number of topics. I think that's the, what, that, that's the thing. There isn't just one thing going on. There are many particular things coming to a, a confluence. It is to check out uh, your many videos on your channel. And I, I think I mentioned to you when we we're doing the pod prep that I was just randomly watching one evening to sort of turn the bra brain off after work. And uh, I was deeply impressed by your uh, analysis of Turkey, which provided me with a, a depth of insight in whatever it was, 15, 20 minutes, which is well beyond anything you get from the sort of the legacy corporate um, media and, and is very insightful. So like many things, it can appear fairly sort of simple on the surface. But as I say, I know from a professional perspective that you don't produce that quality of material by doing a sort of five minutes on Wikipedia beforehand. There's a lot of research that um, goes into it. And just in passing, just as a, as a small and short, but maybe a very important anecdote for some listener out there or a member of their family, your most listened video or longest is actually um, not necessarily about FS, but is, uh, is um, about diabetes type 2 and, and how you recover from it without medicine. So if you just want to sort of flag wave for that in case it helps anybody's health out there, that'd be brilliant. Yeah, I uh, reversed uh, type 2 diabetes because you can never cure it. That's, uh, that, that's one of the things. But uh, back in 2015, uh, I went for a test with the new GP that I registered at. And uh, they contacted me and said, well, you, you've got type 2 diabetes. So uh, I, I went back to the GP and uh, GP said, well, here you go, take metformin, test yourself every day for your blood level. And I try to ask him a bit more because I don't just want to take a, a medicine and uh, not understand what I have. But he was very dismissive. <laughs> so I left the, the GP practice and I started taking the metformin, which is supposed to lower your blood level. It's a prescription drug. But then... Uh, <laughs> On YouTube, I, I found a TED talk by a doctor called Sarah Hallberg in the US. And she explained really clearly what type 2 diabetes was. And basically, I try to follow uh, her advice and change my diet, exercise, and also stop taking metformin because I, I try not to take any prescription drugs if possible because I, I think uh, especially nowadays with, with what's going on I think natural immunity is still important and uh, then I think it was a year later when I went to see the nurse because they do a, a checkup every every year to see how your uh, blood uh, levels are and they check your foot because sometimes your circulation gets worse and, and she was really surprised uh, she said uh, the nurse, well, you've reversed it and uh, you're not taking the metformin anymore. And, and she said, what, do, what did you do? And I said, well, I uh, cut, cut back on carbohydrates like bread, pizza, pasta, ate more meat. You can eat anything, more protein. I didn't cut completely on the carbs and I started exercising more instead of uh, driving into town. If I didn't need to uh, drive, I would walk. I play golf and that's how I reversed it. And the video, I did the video because when I started my YouTube channel, you know, you watch uh, other uh, videos advising uh, people what to do, successful YouTubers that you need to uh, let your viewers know more about you. And I thought, well, I'll do this one about me reversing type 2 diabetes. 
And I think I have about 250,000 views on it, which is something that I never expected is my most viewed uh, video. Well, it's brilliant. It's a great service to humanity when you're at sort of the pearly gates or wherever, wherever we all turn up afterwards. You can sort of mention that by way of um, credit. And, and I recommend anybody with uh, relatives with diabetes to have a look at that. And um, it's a good, uh, good example of, of uh, what the real meaning of contrarian is. If you go along with the medical system, you'll get uh, exactly what the average person is going to get, which, as we get into the ever-corrupted sort of state corporatism, or whatever one we call it, becomes sort of poorer and poorer. Uh, now, in terms of your uh, career journey, there's a lot to talk about on this sort of money in the 21st century thing. Originally, we, talk, we thought we'd talk about it over longer centuries, but it, just, it, it's problematic enough to cover the 21st century at the moment. Before we dive into the money, maybe give people a bit of a feel for what you did before you YouTubing and all this kind of stuff in, in, in by way of professional um, background but also you seem to um, according to LinkedIn be, be in various places around the world you know Geneva Rio de Janeiro I think Florida and now London so um, you've obviously led, uh, led a, an interesting life yes uh, I was born in Brazil and I grew up in Brazil in Rio uh, I went to university in Florida I finished university in Geneva Switzerland my parents moved to Switzerland, and uh, after university, uh, I, ha I got a degree in um, international relations with an emphasis in economics. I got a job eventually after a year. <laughs> I did some uh, jobs like uh, ski teaching for a winter before I found a job at a, a small private bank in Geneva. I was there for, for two, two years at that bank small private bank. I learned all about bonds, especially my bosses were into bonds. They, they used to be bankers, like for big banks trading bonds and did a lot of foreign exchange, equities, futures. So it was a good base for me. And uh, in 1992, I was approached by someone who was starting a, a desk at uh, Cantor Fitzgerald in London. And uh, Cantor Fitzgerald is known as an IDB broker, but uh, this desk was different. It, you were going to be talking directly to clients. So that, that's uh, how I came to London. Eventually, I left Cantor and I got into the futures and options side of things, uh, mostly uh, government bonds and interest rates and also institutional clients. My clients weren't retail clients. And uh, I did a lot of uh, work uh, with Italy like uh, with the major banks and funds in Italy for about eight years. And then I moved to uh, MF Global or Men Financial, as it was called at the time, in 2004. And uh, eventually, I, I uh, again, one of my friends at the golf club, he was a broker and he, he moved to this other company called Mint Equities. And he uh, offered me a good deal. I went there in 2010. But by 2012, <laughs> that company had been taken over actually by Cantor, which is ironic because that was the first company I worked for when I came to London. And then in 2012, they closed the futures desk. So um, yeah, that was the end of me in the city. I did try to get back to the city, but it's hard uh, when you're in your late 40s. Uh, and uh, I decided to start my own uh, business in 2012. It was a franchise and it was called Cash Brokers, a pawnbroking franchise. So I went from working in the city to opening a, a pawnbroker in the high street. That worked well. That was an interesting business, but very hard to, to make a decent profit in the high street. 
I mean, I, I was starting to break even after a year and a half, but I just couldn't see it going. So I decided to, we decided, my wife and I decided to liquidate the business. It was a mistake, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I lost a lot of my savings, but it didn't uh, like ruin me because I'm always really careful. I didn't take any debt. So I was able to recover from that. And uh, it was a little bit about a year after that, that I started doing my uh, YouTube uh, channel. So that's my background. And uh, even though I worked in the city now over about 10 years ago, the last time I follow the markets every day, it's like in my DNA now. So and YouTube let you know, allows me to to keep doing that. Oh, excellent. Well, you've certainly seen this whole debt and money angle from most of the perspectives around the 360 degrees. So diving into money, anybody uh, who's interested in, in much more of the sort of lost in centuries of money should check out LFP 085 Positive Money in 2017. I think sort of just a super executive summary so we can whiz forward to the 21st century is that there have been all sorts of monetary um, systems over time. Generally, uh, unsurprisingly, people have preferred real stuff because real stuff is worth things rather than um, paper. We had all the religious rules around usury and all this kind of stuff. And uh, as many people will know, and you might want to say a little bit more about this one, I'm just glossing over this one, um, as you've got such an interest in gold. We kind of had various gold standards. We had a gold and silver standard about 200 years in, in the UK, and then in the late 19th century, the, the US did a gold standard, and there were all sorts of gold standards on the booze, off the booze, and all sorts of things, creations of Federal Reserves in the 20th century. But the overall thing, as a quote here from the show notes um, of the uh, episode with and positive money, which is Martin Wolf of the FT, the senior economist. The overall thing, which is that we have this thing called fiat money in economic textbooks, uh, which I prefer to call complete bullshit money, because I think that's a little bit clearer and it actually means the same thing. Uh, Martin Wolf, anyway, uh, who is being a bit polite, has said, our financial system is so unstable because the state first allowed it, the private banking sector, to create almost all the money in the economy and was then forced to insure it when performing that function. This is a giant hole at the heart of our market economies. It could be closed by separating the provision of money, rightly a function of the state, from the provision of finance, a function of the private sector. And then the other thing is I mentioned David Graeber's book, Debt the First 5,000 Years, uh, on the podcast once or twice. And it really annoys me, one of the most annoying things, any listener who knows the answer, please write in, because it, it's frustrated me for years, because it's quite a chunky book. To read, which is he quoted this amazing statistic, which has annoyed me for years that I can't remember, which is if everybody, all of us in the world, all people, all governments, all companies repaid all the debt, the world as a whole would still be massively indebted to banks to a figure of X gazillion dollars, uh, the, the X gazillion obviously being a stat I can't remember. And this is really important because the nature of this debt-based fiat bullshit money that used to be created by an accounting entry in a ledger with a quill pen and a nice vellum paper, but is now just bits in bank computers. There's a pernicious part which makes it a Ponzi scheme, and as Graeber points out, all previous monetary systems have fallen uh, apart, which is that, let's say I go to a bank and say, I want to borrow £100. They create it basically mostly out of thin air, let's keep it simple, and they, they kind of stick it in another bank and everybody pretends it's money, keeping it sort of super, super simple. They will basically borrow that money, let's say at LIBID, uh, and then they'll, they'll, they'll lend it to me at LIBOR plus something. Anyway, there's an interest margin. But the point is, I have to repay that interest margin, but that interest margin doesn't actually exist. 
Anyway, long story short, that probably wasn't a clear explanation, but long story short, if everybody repaid all bank debts, everybody would still owe the banks an absolute bloody fortune, uh, which, if, if anything, is the simplest possible way of pointing out that fiat monetary systems are, are bound to collapse and uh, we're seeing a little bit of that um, now. Anyway, so that's the sort of just some key things by way of the background. Is there anything you'd want to say about the times before the year 2000, shall we say, for the sake of argument, that's important for the listeners to know so that they're going to understand a little bit better some of the topics we're going to talk about about the 21st century? I agree with you uh, about the fiat money, that it's a Ponzi scheme. But uh, I uh, actually think banks do serve a purpose under... Uh, like uh, what we call a sound money system, uh, a system where uh, the currency or the debt that the banks issue is backed by something real that they have to have the reserves. And uh, that's how the gold standard work. Uh, Britain was on the gold standard from the early 1700s till 1914. And that was when uh, Britain had its empire. And uh, the, the thing that, that happens under gold standard, most people think, oh, uh, you have to carry gold around and it's difficult to exchange. But it isn't uh, because uh, you have what uh, is called credit instruments, even under a gold standard, because uh, a lot of the bankers found that uh, they could lend <laughs> fractionally because not all their depositors wanted their gold all the time. So actually in the 20th century, for example, the viewer can look at this. They go onto the Bank of England website and go onto their uh, inflation calculator. And if you do 1814, let's say, which is when Britain went, because they had a period there during the Napoleonic Wars where they suspended the gold standard. They went back uh, around 18. 20, I think it was, till 1914. If you do the inflation calculation, then inflation was minus 0.5% a year. So the, the currency was completely stable. But at the same time, the uh, British banks uh, kept, in terms of uh, their liabilities, they only kept a third in gold reserves. So they did lend out. And a lot of the times, when Brit Britain and, and the city of London was the center of uh, banking and trading in the world, very little uh, gold changed hands because a lot of the letters of credit, like they were either 30-day, 60-day, 90-day, based on real goods, they were settled and there's a small margin where you got paid in gold. But most of it was just goods getting discounted. But what happened in uh, 1914, unfortunately, is that World War I broke out and the major warring uh, countries of Europe realized that if they really paid for it with real money, gold, i.e. gold, they wouldn't be able to keep fighting. So they suspended it, uh, which is basically they um, defaulted on their uh, loans, you know, liabilities uh, that they had. And uh, Ever since then, 1914, uh, even though Churchill, as a chancellor, took Britain back to the uh, on the gold standard from, I think, 25 or 26 till 1931. Ever since then, we, we, we really haven't been on a, a sound money footing. And is it any wonder that we've had so much inflation? Uh, I mean, um, just go to the Bank of England calculator again, and you'll see that it's completely different than it was from 1820 to 1914, just to 1914 to 
2020-2021 and you see that uh, a pound back then now is like thousands of pounds instead of being the same. Absolutely. So I, I agree with everything you say and um, my simplification was an oversimplification. I mean, the, the money market started in London in the 17th century simply as the East India Company didn't do a great job of trying to flog its wool <laughs> in the Spice Islands or in India, because unsurprisingly in Indon what we call Indonesia these days, Indonesia and India, there ain't that much demand for wool. And therefore they found that the only way to trade was to get Spanish, whatever they were, reals. And it was quite tricky to, to get all these. So that's, that is literally the origin of the money market. If you go back to the 17th century, the city it was all commercial stuff. It had no bananas, oranges, cloth, you name it. It was, a, it was a real trade. And as you say, that then for centuries, money was kind of a real thing. And little bits, chinks crept in, as you say, letters of credit, private banks. I mean, there was the 1844 Bank Charter Act we talk about in the Positive Money um, episode, where the government tried to stop private organisations creating their own money in, in pyramids of debt. And, and actually, it was poor drafting that led us from there to to 2008. And uh, you mentioned that the World War One that was a catastrophe. And I, I now see World War One as the end of European civilization. And in a sense, we're just sort of a century downstream of that. And a lot of what's happening with the insanity we'll now talk about in terms of the 21st century is just what happened in the, at the end of the Roman Empire. You know, you had the sort of people, sh the, 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 the states shaving the currency uh, and debasing the currency to try and keep things going. And, and also in passing, you had sort of uh, uh, the Senate sort of sitting on, on the sidelines, just filling its own boots and giving up trying to perform a useful function. Anyway, let's put all that to one side. So coming on to the 21st century, we've had this fiat monetary system for quite uh, a long time. I think there was some statistic, uh, I don't have it to hand right now, but it was, took something like 200 or 300 years to create the first trillion pounds of UK money supply. It took eight years to create the next one trillion and it's taken four years to connect the one trillion. Now you imagine doing a several hundred year chart of that, you know, we're, we're going vertically. Over my professional career, since I took over fixed interest fund management in 1988, I looked it up as a random statistic. The money supply has increased 16 fold, i.e. there is 16 times as much money as there is now. Um, and unsurprisingly, uh, this is feeding through into inflation. For quite a long time, the central banks were complacent because it wasn't consumer price inflation, but it was asset price inflation. Houses are through the roof. They're unaffordable for the younger generation in London now, which and they weren't that affordable when I was young, but it's impossible. Now, stock market's gone through the roof. The likes of uh, gold has gone through the roof. So uh, real inflation um, has been happening. And uh, just a little anecdote to that to give people a feel. I remember when my kids were pretty pretty young, for some reason they started trading blue tack at school, I don't know, for a crisp or a bracelet or something like that. Uh, and I bought my girls a, a big slab of blue tack. Unsurprisingly, the impact of this led to inflation at school because the more stuff is, as you say, you're, you're a fan of the Austrian economists school, uh, they point out quite clearly that inflation is a monetary phenomena. If you suddenly produce 16, if there are 16 times as many pounds going around, unsurprisingly, there are more pounds to buy houses. So that's where we got to um, and then we obviously had the 2008 situation. Um, and then I don't know whether you want to talk just a little bit in, in brief about um, all these sort of smoke and mirrors and wizardry uh, called QE or an MMT where one part of the government lends money to another part and it creates it and lends it back and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And even the Bank of England have admitted that that has increased inequality. But basically, we seem to be at the end of a fiat monetary system is, is the net review. I mean, what's your more nuanced take on that, perhaps? Yeah, I think it was Voltaire who said that uh, the thing about paper money is that paper money reverts to its intrinsic value of zero. And you look back at history, all, all fiat currencies or fiat money 
they've all reverted back to zero. And uh, yes, you're right. I think European civilization has been on the downward spiral since the end, uh, the beginning of World War One. We triggered World War Two with that, but we did have, I guess, the U.S. who was able to keep the world on a sound money system up until 1971, when Nixon took us off uh, a gold anchor, so to speak. He suspended the convertibility of the dollar. <laughs> temporarily, he said at the time, into gold at uh, $35 an ounce. Yeah, and uh, yes, it's, a, it's been a century of uh, inflation. It's a, been a century of war because you can always finance uh, wars more easily when you don't have real money. But w like you said, we end up paying for it through higher prices. And, and I like to differentiate uh, inflation from rising prices because inflation is, like you said, a monetary phenomenon. So you produce, you multiply the money supply and the credit as well 16 times. It's like uh, putting water in a pint of a beer or a lager and people are going to notice, well, where's the beer? And it's the same thing. They've been putting this funny fiat money into the money supply with no uh, increase in real savings. And by real savings, I mean uh, savings that come about through hard work, through savings. <laughs> we, we, we seem to think that we need just debt and credit to grow an economy. People forget that actually saving is a good thing as well. But you can't do that under a, a system where the the money becomes worth less and less. You can do, do it under a sound money system, a, a gold-backed system, or even a bimetallic system where silver is also used as money. Ideally, I would say the, the market should decide what people use and what governments or the state does is become an arbiter of the coinage. They, they set the standards, and by standards, I don't mean you know, the value of it, but uh, the weight of the coin, the fineness, and uh, they make sure that it's not counterfeit. And, and they get a seniorage, a little bit of uh, the gold for doing that. And a lot of times they can finance themselves with the seniorage. And you don't even need a gold standard. All you have is the government providing the uh, service of minting the coins of the realm. And if banks want to... <laughs> evolve around that system they can they can uh you know depositors will put you know people who have been able to to save a lot of money and are wealthy they can put the money with the bank and they can lend it out and that's where we come to central banking <laughs> and you quoted martin wolf and martin wolf said that uh, we have the government uh insuring these bankers well that's only because we've got the central bank and the central bank, they scratch the government's back and they help each other out. And it, what Walter Badgett, I think, said in the 19th century, that a central bank is the lender of last resort. Well, I, I think that's a really bad system. I, I don't think we should have a central bank. Just like in any other business or any other industry, we, we don't have a central uh, bakery or a central brewery where the government and the brewers work together. Why do we need a central bank? And I think bankers would be a lot more responsible if they were a, a limited liability company and that and they knew that there was, wasn't going to be a central bank and the government to bail them out. And I think after the 08 crisis here in the UK, when RBS had to be bailed out, Northern Rock failed, I think they had a 
some kind of uh, commission in Parliament, and they uh, invited uh, bankers, and they invited Charles, uh, I think his name is Charles Hoare of uh, Hoare Bank, Charles Hoare and Company. It's actually the oldest private bank in, the, in England. They were around before the Bank of England, and they asked him, how come you've survived so long? What's your secret? And he said, well, the secret is that we're not a public company. Our partners have liability. They have liability. So if our bank acts irresponsibly, each partner will lose everything. So I think that's how it should be. We, we, it might sound weird, but I, I think we should, uh, yeah, have all the banks be like Charles Hoare and Co. because they've survived. Yes, no, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot in what you say there. I mean, I shall have to send you afterwards a, a photograph of a couple of pages in, in my book where I talk about the collapse of two banks in the 19th century. One was the city of Glasgow Bank and the other was some cityish bank. I've forgotten which was which. One of which was limited liability and the other which was unlimited liability. And the unlimited liability is effectively a, a, a weak partnership. But that was a, a mistake made um, back then. And I happened to look at uh, Ron Paul's book. I'm a, a big fan of Ron Paul, a very good guy, I think, uh, End the Fed um, on Amazon this morning, uh, which gets 4.8 stars out of five on Amazon from over 1,100 reviews. And the interesting thing is that some of the reviews say, look, I don't agree with Ron Paul on many of his political positions, but this is a great book and he's completely right. And we have to remember that, you know, the period when America did um, particularly well, apart from sort of post-Second World War, when it was benefiting by basically taking over the, the British Empire. But at the time it did really well, there wasn't a Federal Reserve in the States. And that's despite having a catastrophic um, uh, civil war, yet it managed to grow really well at the end of the 19th century and, and all this kind of, kind of stuff. Um, so now, there's a whole angle there which we'll come back to, which is that if you and I and Martin Wolf and, and, and some other sensible people who really cared compassionately about the 7 billion people on this planet, or at least the sort of 70 million in this country, sat down and tried to come up with a better scheme, we could definitely come up with a better scheme. We'd have a hell of a problem transitioning to that uh, better scheme. But well, let's come back to the fact that at the moment we've got a bunch of globalists, uh, as, I, as I said in the New Year's uh, uh, special podcast, clearly uh, trying to drive the world towards a sort of technocratic uh, social credit tyranny, uh, which does actually uh, impact what's happening in the monetary thing. But let's, let's, let's leave that one till later. You mentioned the private market, um, and I happen to see that uh, Ron Paul had made positive comments about these and I'm interested in your views, because obviously a lot of listeners to the, the podcast, I don't cover it very much, largely because it hasn't got a killer use case at the moment, but, and it's more speculation than currency. But what's your position on cryptos? Because, you know, many people would make the argument, Mario, that actually the marketplace is already doing what you suggest, which is going, oh, look, this currency is crap. And yes, a dollar a century ago is worth a cent now. That's ridiculous. We are going to do something better on our own. And therefore, they're kind of privatizing it by by the back door. So what is your position on cryptos? Do you think they've got a, a role to play in this? Or do you think that they're a sort of a dead end in a sense? Or do you think that they'll just be corralled by the, the, the US Federal Reserve or the governments, you know, if they start sort of threatening their monopoly? Yeah, the idea is good. And uh, I started looking into cryptos back in 2012. And uh, it ticks, ticks all the boxes. And I think one of the reasons crypto came about uh, and the blockchain is because people have lost trust in governments. I spoke about how government has to be an arbiter, of, uh, you know, of the coinage, the, the coin of the realm. And, but that's gone out the window. And we've had 100 years in Europe and in the US, we've had 50 years of this funny money and people are fed up. And uh, what uh, crypto does, it solves the, the problem of trust because it's an open ledger, transparent system, proof of work. 
The other thing it does, it solves the uh, Byzantium general's <laughs> dilemma, which is like in battle, if one person betrays you, the whole battle can be lost. And uh, that's that's what crypto does. But like you, you mentioned, uh, will they try to hijack it? And I think they are. I, I saw a headline today in the FT that they've got now uh, uh, Frankfurt is, uh, I don't know if it would, which... Uh, which company, but a German company started a crypto fund and it's supposed to be the cheapest uh, uh, to get onto the, as an ETF or whatever. And I think, yeah, unfortunately, the banking system, the central banks and the bankers who we can still not trust, right? They could hijack crypto because the people uh, like me who study crypto, we understand that the reason for having crypto is to get out of the banking system. But now if you have the banking system trying to capture crypto, they could do the same thing that uh, the bankers did to gold and silver with crypto. Because the uh, average Joe Bloggs out there, he's not going to go and read the white paper for, for Bitcoin and see that it's actually trying to get away from the banking system and that you have to have your own private wallet. No, he's just going to go buy the ETF and from Wall Street or the city or Frankfurt and Paris. And who knows if the, the banks that issue the, those ETFs or the companies that issue it actually have any cryptos. So that is a danger, you know, and uh, I was also skeptical when they developed a, a futures uh, contract in 2017, 2018, I think on the CME. I'm skeptical of Wall Street getting involved in crypto because crypto was trying to get away from the banking system. And I think uh, the central banks uh, with the CBDCs, which means central bank digital currency, they could be uh, using all the uh, popularity of crypto and uh, cryptocurrencies to jump, jump on the bandwagon. So when their system unravels, which I think uh, there's no other way, as we spoke about earlier, fiat currency or fiat money always goes to zero. They might try cheekily to say, oh, look, we've got a our own crypto now, and, and that will work. I won't buy into it. And yeah, I agree. Cryptocurrency is a market-based system, but there's a lot of abuse going on as well in the cryptos. It's a whole episode in itself. Uh, again, actually, I've, I've been looking for the last year or so, actually, at someone to review where we are on crypto. And it's very hard to find someone who's prepared to say on the one hand and on the other hand, as you say, it's got all these advantages. On the other hand, people have nicked tons of the stuff uh, left, right and centre, which is unlucky. And also, just going back to my historical perspective, if you look at the last 4,000 years of monetary systems around the world and what worked and what didn't, those based on real stuff actually have a, have a huge advantage because the real stuff is real stuff. I mean, the, the East India Company found silver really valuable in the 17th century and we find silver really valuable today. And, you know, that, that says something. And also there's a big concern, again, from a sort of, you know, uh, New World Ordery, globalisty thing that, um, you know, we had event... 201. Oh, prepping for a potential coronavirus world thing about six months beforehand. Gosh, fancy that. And there was, I saw there was one recently and there've been many of these about preparing. What happens if the internet suddenly shut down and, and all that kind of stuff? So, you know, these electronic things aren't always there for the time. And there's another episode to be done at some point, perhaps this year, on CBDCs, because CBDCs are in a way the state taking the whole crypto idea and moving it for itself. And, oh yeah, we've got smart contracts and all this kind of stuff. Um, but then there's a whole bunch of issues around that. I mean, this is the this is the week when uh, Justin Trudeau has you know invoked war powers against the sort of the Nazis are outside, otherwise known as the ordinary 
poor working class people of Canada and go fund me, stop the money and you know they've they've hacked into the files of whatever that uh, next platform was that, that sent the money and when the state when the state tracks every trade when the state monitors all your electricity and all that then that's going to be the most sort of hellish possibility ever for totalitarianism so that's another way of them um, hijacking anyway it's a whole topic um, in itself let's put that to to one side let's touch on one or two other points a couple have cropped up in your youtubes uh, and so people are interested more in these can check out Mineco 64 and the name of these two particular topics. But briefly, uh, just to give people a little bit of a, a taste if they want to find out more about your thoughts on these matters, the words hyperinflation and de-dollarization have separately uh, arisen in some of your videos about where we are at the moment. Um, so what's your, what's your outlook um, for those? And maybe we start with de-dollarization because many people won't have heard the phrase as such. Yeah, I guess de-dollarization is... Um the world, uh, different nations trying to depend less and less on the dollar uh, for trade and payments and also uh, uh, holding dollars as reserves. And, and I think that's continuing to happen, even though the dollar is still the most uh, widely held reserve currency. I think we're at 59%. It was, I think, around 66, 70% some years ago. So it is dropping the euro has picked up quite a bit. And I would say the Chinese uh, yuan will probably pick up in the future. And uh, basically, I think one of the reasons countries like Russia, Turkey, Iran, even uh, Brazil uh, this year, uh, well, last year, they, they increased their gold reserves by 60% holding gold instead of dollars is de-dollarizing. And one of the reasons a lot of the world has been de-dollarizing is because the United States has been using the dollar as a political weapon uh, to uh, impose sanctions and to block people from, from trading. And uh, the other reason I think is uh, Triffin's paradox in that uh, if you run the world's reserve currency, in a fiat currency system, all the other countries in the world that are not the United States, they're going to do uh, the best they can to sell as much as they can to the United States. So the, it's ended up that the United States has a huge current account and trade deficit. And uh, it's also given the US the, uh, they call it the exorbitant privilege of printing their funny money and buying whatever they want. And people are starting to wake up to that, especially the Chinese and the Russians and others, that uh, the, this uh, treasury paper that they hold is becoming worth less and less. So I think in the end of the day, we're still going to have national currencies, but they'll have to have some kind of backing. And I think that's why gold is still important. And uh, in the end of a fiscal year, for example, China and Russia will check their accounts, and if they're in balance, uh, they, they won't have to, to ship any gold back and forth. But if China has a surplus, then, you know, Russia will have to send the gold uh, back to China and vice versa. And that will happen everywhere around the world. And I think that's how it used to be prior to World War I. That's how countries operated. And it was done through the banking system. Yes. So it is very much as if the US either buy quotes, bad luck or intent or something in the middle of that spectrum is trying to abolish itself, which we see plenty of uh, examples of because it is 
overplaying its hand and uh, as a podcast I heard over Christmas by some Afrikaners actually talking about the situation in South Africa, which was a bit grim. But uh, the, the, the Afrikaners phrase was the, the rotting carcass of the American empire. But anyway, um, okay, so that's de-dollarization. And then just very briefly, uh, I didn't actually get around to watching YouTube on hyperinflation. And inflation, uh, well, like everything these days, all the statistics, you can't trust the government. The CPI or something hit 5% this week or something like that, which is nonsense. When we go out to lunch or to the pub, it's cost a hell of a lot more than it did a couple of years ago. No way is it 5%. So the government is lying as it does about... Uh, uh, most things. But when I see the word hyperinflation, I remember my school history lessons about the Weimar Republic and 23,000% inflation every 15 milliseconds and taking your wages home in a, in a wheelbarrow and, and all that kind of stuff. So maybe it's a clickbaity word or maybe it's your actual forecast. But, you know, in terms of the outlook for inflation, before we, we wrap up with practical advice of surviving and thriving in a, in a mad monetary climate, what kind of future are you seeing for sort of inflation uh, levels per se in, in the US or the UK, Europe? Yes, the problem with the inflation and the rising prices we have now is that uh, the central banks are well behind the curve. We had the uh, CPI in the UK today, that came out at 5.5%. You probably remember the old RPI number, <laughs> which is really a better reflection of uh, the standard of living. That went up by 78 and yet, we still have a, a Bank of England base rate at half a percent, while it should really be 10%. So we do have the inflation, and hyperinflation is different because, yes, it starts with the rising prices and then the food prices and the inflation, and then it gets to a point where the general public... I don't know what triggers it, it's just psychological, and uh, they realize that the government and the banking system will never be able to stop the inflation. So their demand for currency or money drops. What does that mean? Well, that means they lose confidence in it. So they will uh, try to get rid of that paper and that money for anything they can, because they know that in, in a month's time, that money will buy a lot less. And we're seeing that, funnily enough, in, in used car prices, which is something modern, because in Weimar, Germany, I don't think people drove many cars, you know. <laughs> but uh, nowadays, we're, we're seeing that uh, in the US and here, used car prices are still going through the roof this year and now as I speak. And we know that uh, historically, the old saying was, if you bought a new car in the UK, uh, you drove off the uh, the car dealership, you, you were losing 20% on the VAT, but now it seems like uh, you, you're making uh, money. But I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to sell my car. <laughs> it's paid for. And, and I could get more than I, uh, about double of what I could get four years ago. But in six months time, I won't be able to buy it back. So that's how it starts. And, and it's not to do with costs it's to do with confidence. And there's other symptoms of hyperinflation that I touched upon a couple of days in my video. And that's loss of confidence, not just in the money, but in the uh, government, in the state. It's not just uh, on the uh, loss of confidence in the conservatives, but the whole apparatus of, of the state is a loss of confidence in the uh, authorities like the police. And we're seeing that as well with all the protests, loss of confidence in academia, with the universities, the wokeism, loss of confidence uh, in the media, which is the fourth, fourth state, loss of confidence in the big corporations that we should admire normally, 
and uh yeah and it all comes together and uh it's really having read uh, books about hyperinflation most people it comes like a thief uh, in the night you know you <laughs> one day things are uh, that the money is worth something the next day it's gone and it doesn't last very long and the, there are other symptoms like uh, gambling and speculation and we've seen this for the last 10 12 years i mean people who have uh, run-of-the-mill jobs they have trading accounts they trade uh, leveraged ETFs and why is that well because the money is no good anymore and uh, they don't earn enough to have a comfortable living so they speculate so that that's hyperinflation in my view interesting okay that's very comprehensive well that leads on quite nicely um, but maybe I should do a sort of slightly unblackpilling thing beforehand because we've been talking about the challenges and the concerns about where we are as a monetary system right now by just making the, the small preamble that unless you're fortunate and the likes of you and I have lived in a, in a particularly calm period, you know, post-Korea War, uh, skipping the Vietnam War, where everything has been pretty sane. But frankly, if you go back most centuries in the UK uh, that have been in the state of England, uh, there have been some stupid shit going on. You know, a century ago was the first war. That wasn't very nice. It wasn't nice being a parent wondering whether your kid's dead when you wake up in the morning. A century before that, there's Napoleonic Wars and, you know, go on and on and on throughout history. And a thousand years ago, it was the Normans trashing the place. So uh, as the Buddha said two and a half thousand years ago, it is samsara. <laughs> it's, it's not meant to be perfect here. So the practical question, whether living now or under the Normans, is how to survive and how to thrive. And, and I think one of the corollaries, which is sort of, sort of fairly simple one before handing over to you on this one, is that if the basic thing that we're saying, uh, and it is correct, which is that money isn't a real thing, then keeping your wealth in money, certainly in any form of cash or, or bank account, especially with all these things going on, it isn't a, isn't a great idea. And to an extent, just keeping it super simple, and you can sort of zoom in a little bit more nuanced level, real things are going to exist. So let's take a sake of argument. Let's say there's a terrible monetary crash over the next three, four, five years. Unless something really wacky happens, my house will still be standing. I may have problems getting the roof fixed or something, but the house won't fall down. Uh, gold bars will still exist. Motor cars will still exist. And uh, I know that you're particularly keen on gold and you understand the market very well. And I've noticed that actually over our lifetimes, we're a similar age, gold has increased in value a hundredfold. Huh, phenomenal. If only our parents had put a, a couple of quid in, in some gold uh, when they started. So on the big picture, I mean, do you agree with the basic hypothesis that to, su to survive the virtual insanity, one needs to buy real things? And I think, by the way, just as a, as a, just a, as a side point, this is what the New World Order are doing. This is why Gates is buying up a ton of farmland. This is why BlackRock is buying up millions of houses and renting them out. You know, if there's a monetary collapse, you've got stuff. Will you just sell it for whatever the new currency is, that, you know, the new sterling, the new euro, the new, new dollar or something like that? So do you agree that sort of stuff is the thing to do? And then within stuff... Obviously, there's some stuff like gold and silver that's lasted for centuries more than other stuff like uh, bitcoins and that. Um, so what is your uh, what is your thoughts on, on the best way for listeners to approach this? And I'm very conscious that it will look very a hell of a lot if you're a 20 something with a ton of student debts, no chance of buying a house in London. Um, or if you're a listener who's sort of 60 something, 70 something living off uh, a pension, uh, which in passing is probably uh, uh, limited to. 5% or the lower of 5% or the CPI or IPI or whatever it is. So they've got a risk too. They got rid of the triple lock this year, didn't they? Yes, having real things, tangible assets in a currency uh, collapse is helpful. And uh, I I've spoken to um, a couple of guys. One of them, he uh, was growing up in Romania in the 1990s and they had very high inflation 
almost hyperinflation. And it's not easy. One of the things he said that you need, aside from having, if you're uh, fortunate enough to have savings, hard assets, and to have some gold and silver, you also need to be in a community where you know people and you are friends with people to help each other out because in a hyperinflation, the money is destroyed. So it, it's very hard. You might have to resort to bartering. I don't know if we're going to get to that point. And uh, what about financial assets? I think they could be also uh, under threat. I read a book by a guy called Franz Pick, and he used to write the uh, central bank review, like currency review. He provided them in the 50s and 60s to the central banks. He was an economist originally from Austria. And he said uh, when he got back from World War One in Austria, his dad had saved a uh, like a, an insurance policy for him to cash out for him to go to university. And when he cashed that out after the hyperinflation in central Germany and central Europe, he was only able to buy like a dinner <laughs> with that policy. So yeah, unfortunately, financial assets, anything like that has a liability to the currency, uh, if we have a hyperinflation, that w won't do well. And uh, yeah, hard assets, like you said, Bill Gates has been buying farmland. I saw two, three years ago, uh, one of the billionaire Americans who started a, a media company, I forgot the name, he is buying uh, farm farmland. And gold and silver are different. They, they are like liquid, they're, they're money, but farmland and uh, other hard assets, tangibles, and in the hyperinflation, it will be very, uh, hard to sell them. So you have to make sure you don't have the debt because I know the debt is destroyed in the hyperinflation, but the bankers, they always try to uh, reset the system. And, and uh, I think in Germany, uh, if you had a, a debt, it worked out well for you after the hyperinflation because they didn't really reimpose the full debt. But the problem is like right now and when the hyperinflation is kicking off, uh, when you have to worry about just buying food, let's say someone on lower incomes, they have to make sure if they have a mortgage or other debts that they're able to pay that because they could lose a lot of stuff even before the, the hyperinflation kicks off. So that's how I see it. Just very briefly, I need to do a special episode on, on gold as well. I mean, because gold is a whole one hour topic on it on its own. Um, but just very briefly, it's not a market I've particularly paid that close attention to, especially with a, a prior incarnation as fixed interest fund management. Uh, I find it very hard to buy things with yields of zero. <laughs> that's just my challenge. And I should have bought gold yonks ago. But the one thing that's always been in the back of my mind, and, and I've seen some of the things that you've said, and I've seen something that uh, Godfrey Bloom, I think he talks about this stuff occasionally, and, and other people on YouTube over the decades without paying much attention, is the nature that there's sort of something of the rigging of the gold and silver markets and, and, and this kind of stuff. Now, again, that's a, that's a huge topic and, and you've got a whole bunch of videos on it. But just very briefly, how much is it kind of rigged? How much is it kind of a false market? How much of it will actually escape once again the state and corporates and banks control of it and actually do what you might expect? Or is it being artificially suppressed? Well, I think uh, what they try to do is actually discourage the general public who don't know much about the system, about gold and money to get involved in gold. Which says a lot in itself in passing which says a lot in itself. If they're trying to discourage you from doing something, maybe it's in your interests, not in theirs. Yeah, because I, I found falling gold since 2002 that it's very frustrating because you're seeing all these uh, things happen, like uh, 
crises, QE, a lot of debt, deficits, uh, <laughs> bubbles, and uh, inflation. And uh, if they allowed the price of gold to go up with the debasement of the currency in a straight line like that, people would would jump in because you know <laughs> it's a really good hedge. But if you uh, kind of uh, smash it down once in a while and then keep it down for uh, uh, one or two years and then all of a sudden just let it go again, it uh, discourages people. They think it's risky. And like you said, gold has gone up a hundred times <laughs> since we were born. It's not risky. It's been around for uh, as a store of value for 4,000 years. So I think that's what they try to do to keep uh, the public away from gold because if the public uh, move into gold, their fiat system comes under threat because people want to have gold. So they got to keep people away from it. And I think that's how they do it. But uh, if they could manipulate it and keep it low forever, gold would still be at $35 an ounce and Nixon wouldn't have, have had to close the gold window. So eventually, yes, it's a, a market that you need to know what it's about and that you need to be patient. And the other thing I would say is that uh, not to leverage yourself because let's say you come into an inheritance and you get a hundred thousand pounds, maybe put 25,000 into it and then don't put the whole hundred thousand because then if gold goes down 10%, you're going to feel pretty bad about it and probably sell it and never get into gold again. Yes, and just in passing for the uh, listener, so Nixon was 35, which would be about, oh, I don't know, 72, current price 1852. So it's gone up quite a lot since then, to put it uh, mildly. There are actually um, one or two gold fintechs out there, um, which uh, is an area um, I haven't actually covered, um, and you had some uh, good ideas yourself, which will take offline, and maybe I'll be able to get a gold fintech on the show to talk about the interaction of gold and fintech and what useful things you can do with that. But anyway, before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there. I hope too many of you haven't been too perturbed. This issue of fiat money has been around for some time. It may not collapse today or tomorrow or the day after. However, a bit like skating onto a lake where the ice is getting thinner and thinner, the risk is increasing. And depending on where you are on the age curve, there are various actions that you might want to be taking to ensure that uh, as and when the, the ice cracks, uh, you manage to float across the, the gap until there's some um, more ice. I'd like to thank my brand partners for the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading edge retirement tech platform propelled them to success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. Then this is board.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making your board an engine of growth today. And just to continue my shout out, the first six listeners that contact me in the first quarter or by the end of April at clarity.fm slash Mike Ballyman, that's one L, slash LFP, which I forgot last time, which is the free code, can have half an hour's free mentoring on... Uh, uh, career, uh, FS, or uh, startup. So, Mario, you've been very kind and you've given us a huge amount of, uh, of information. There's, there's years of your channel uh, to back up anything uh, for people want to, to dive in. And as I say, it's Maneco64, M-A-N-E-C-O-64 on YouTube. Are there any other things that you'd like to shout out for in terms of your various other incarnations and activities right now? Yes, aside from my YouTube channel, where I make a video every day, and uh, I do a live stream on Sunday at 9pm London for an hour where people can ask me questions. I'm also uh, a consultant 
in the hard assets, i.e. gold and silver. And I work closely uh, with Gold Investments, which is a bullion dealer in the city of London. They've been there since 1981. You can find me uh, on Facebook. I'm also on Twitter if you want to follow me there. Excellent. Well, I have actually spoken to one or two fintechs actually in the last few weeks, interestingly enough, new fintechs forming who are very much looking at alternative investments. So as a whole, there are alternative investments out there. And I'm sure that any of those that are looking at at this space would be well advised to both check out your content, but also ping you about some advice for them, because a lot of these markets are way more complex than it appears to the amateur. I think I remember seeing Milton Friedman interviewed. And for those who haven't seen him interviewed, he tended to know everything about everything, or at least think, think that he did. He knew quite a lot about quite a lot. And also Thomas Sal, perhaps, maybe on both of them on the same topic. But, and he was asked about how did De Beers maintain diamond prices of what they are? Because diamonds should be pretty much worthless, actually, because there are so many and you can create them artificially. And he said, well, that's the one thing I don't know. <laughs> so there are these complicated markets like gold, silver and diamonds that it really pays to, if you're going to get involved in, get real sort of professional advice, especially if you're doing a business in this area from somebody who really knows the the ins and the outs, because there are lots of pitfalls for the unwary. So it's been a brilliant tour de force, a tour d'horizon, Mario. So thank you very much for that. And I wish you every success in the future. And when it all falls apart, uh, I'm sure your portfolio will be much better protected than anyone else's. And I hope the benefit of you being on the show today is that not just your portfolio, when it all sort of uh, goes pop, but many other listeners will have been uh, influenced by you and check you out and have some more real assets and, and defensive assets in their portfolio. So thank you very much for that, Mario, and I wish you every success in the future. Thank you very uh, much, Mike, for having me, and I wish you all the best as well. Thanks for listening. If you're in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience, and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech, or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We could sit in a bender all day Watching the firelight dance Watching the firelight dance We could walk in the mountains before dawn Watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. To come away from the city, but with the tarmac so dead and the people so sad. Come away from the city But with the faces so great Mountains and the trees Can you see what I mean? Can you see what I mean? We fit in between the earth and the sky Kiss the city goodbye 
Wave us at a goodbye Wave us at a goodbye Wave us at a goodbye Watch the firelight dance with me 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 Watch the firelight